from Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in, course of time, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel with Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain, Cain, said, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, No, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest, anyone, lest, any, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. From Genesis 4, 17 to 26. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is seventyfold or sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are continuing on in our series in the book of Genesis. And we're now uh, on to Genesis chapter 4, and you can follow along in your service sheets on pages 9 and 10. But let me pray as we uh, look into God's Word. 
Father, we, uh, we come before you um, and we ask uh, that as we look into your word, that you would help us to see you more clearly. We ask that you'd help us to see Jesus more clearly, and we ask that you'd help us to see ourselves more clearly in light of who you are. We ask for your spirit to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Sunday, you may have noticed, is called Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the church calendar before we start a new liturgical year, as uh, Josh was uh, um, guiding us through at the beginning of the service. Um, this liturgical year, this calendar year, is a way of telling time in relation to the life of Jesus. It's a way of structuring our entire lives to be focused on Jesus. And so next Sunday, uh, when we begin the season of Advent, uh, we focus on the announcement to the birth of Jesus and all that means for us. And then we'll start following the events of Jesus' life for the whole year to come. But this Sunday, this Sunday we're at the end of the calendar, where we're focused on Jesus the King, who returns to us in victory and restores all things. That's our future hope, and in some ways a reality that breaks into the present as we seek to follow Jesus together. And I think the Collect for Christ the King Sunday which Josh prayed for us moments ago, uh, bears repeating, because it's a really good one. It says, Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. In this prayer, we're looking at two things. We're looking to Jesus, the King of Kings, to set things right, to restore all things, to break down division, to free us from sin. And then we're looking at the world around us. And here we see the peoples of the earth divided and enslaved by sin. We look around and we see Israel and Gaza. We see Russia and Ukraine. We see Democrats and Republicans. We have Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. We have racial division, class divides, human trafficking, and I can go on and on and on with the polarization that has come to define the present moment that we're in in this world. Humanity is rife with division. But this week, uh, I would venture to guess that there are quite a few of us who have been a little more focused on a different date on our regular calendar. One day that just passed, Thanksgiving Day. And along with the focus on that different date comes a focus on a different sort of division we may face. So maybe this collect uh, hits you on a different level than that of international relations and war and politics. Maybe it's on the more personal level of family relationships. I noticed this year that there was a shift in the subject matter of a lot of op-eds in the newspapers and memes about Thanksgiving this year. It used to be that uh, most of the articles were about how to survive Thanksgiving with your in-laws. And now it seems to be all about surviving Thanksgiving with your family. 
And now it's uh, in these family gatherings, or maybe it's in our avoidance of these family gatherings, that sin and division really stand out in a personal way. I don't know, but I'm, I'm guessing that at least some of us experienced this this week. Now, maybe you're listening to me and you're thinking, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on seeing the division in the world, in my family, uh, maybe even within my own life. But what does that have to do with enslavement to sin, as it says in the Collect? Well, lucky for you, uh, this ties right into our scripture reading in Genesis chapter 4. We've spent a number of weeks in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve were facing the consequences of not trusting God's goodness or provision, of questioning God's character, and seeking to enjoy all the gifts of God apart from the intimacy of God's presence with them. And they get mercifully cast out from the possibility of living forever in a state of dysfunction. And so we come to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the consequences of the separation between God and humanity playing out once Adam and Eve are ejected from the Garden of Eden and they start a family. And we actually get to see the effects of sin mapped out over multiple generations. Genesis 4 maps the breakdown of relationships between God and humanity, between humans and each other, even between humans and the rest of creation. And there we see entitlement and favoritism and estrangement and pride, jealousy, murder, exile, and fear. And that's just between the first four people mentioned in the Bible. I don't think uh, Thanksgiving dinner would have been much fun there. But at the same time that we see this cascade of pain and disorder, we see a God who does not abandon his creation but he actually works towards the restoration of all things, especially focusing on us humans who were created in his image. And so let's look at the breakdown first, and then we'll look at God's response to this breakdown. We'll start with the story of a birth, actually two births, two baby boys. But from the moment of the birth of the first boy named Cain, we see hints that all is not well with the world. The first hint is seen in the mother, Eve's reaction to the birth. In verse 1, Eve's, Eve looks at this baby that has been born and says, I've gotten a man with the Lord's help. At first glance, it seems that Eve is simply acknowledging God's help in an event, childbirth, something that we're told in Genesis 3 would be full of pain. But notice how God is subtly sidelined in the statement. The focus is on I. Look what I have done. Oh, and the Lord, the Lord helped me, of course. Thanks for that. One of my best friends is, is a pilot. So I inevitably hung around uh, an airport uh, where I grew up as, as uh, I hung out with his family. And every so often, we'd see a bumper sticker on a car that reads, God is my co-pilot. And maybe you've seen those. Uh, it's the same sentiment. It says, I'm the one in charge. Look at what I did. You know, God's there. He's doing stuff. But I'm the one at the controls. And so we see here right away 
that the division that has come between God and humanity is expressed in this desire for human autonomy. To be like God, to live out what we are created for, but to do it as we see fit. And while it seems like there's gratitude present, it's kind of a polite acknowledgement. More like when you see a parent telling their child to say thank you when they're given a gift. There's gratitude, but is there gratefulness? Well, we'll, we'll get back to this distinction as we move along in the story. The second hint that not all is well is found in the names Eve gives to her sons. Names are very important in certain cultures today, and they were throughout all of the ancient world. Eve names her first son Cain, the firstborn son, the one she made. His name means something like to get or to create. He's the child of possibility. He's the favored one. But it's the name of her second son that really brings out a sort of favoritism of the firstborn son that will be a theme throughout the entire Bible and in many ways throughout human history. It's a theme that's consistently subverted in the Bible. The second son is named Abel. Abel means vapor or mist. He's an afterthought. He's unimportant. He's the other child. No mention of the joy of having another son. No gratitude is expressed here. And so here, even with just two children mentioned, the clear favoritism of one and the dismissal of the other emerges. The division between God and humanity is leading to division between mother and son. But it's not just mother and son. Eve's husband, Adam, is almost entirely absent from the whole story, with the exception of his role in getting her pregnant. But our main focus is drawn to the two brothers, the favored firstborn and the afterthought. Here the division becomes even more explicit. Abel, we are told, is a shepherd. Cain, a farmer who worked the ground. They both come before the Lord with an offering from the results of the work that they do. And here we're taken off guard. God seems to like one offering out of Abel's much better than that of Cain's. Why is that? Abel's offering is slightly different than Cain's. Not just that it's an animal rather than produce. No, we're told that Abel offered the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. He offered the best. Cain just offered some portion of what he had. And so here we're seeing on the one hand with Abel, a gratefulness for God's provision expressed by giving back to God the first and the best, as opposed to Cain's expression of gratitude seen in his more generic offering. With Abel, there's a sense that all is a gift of God and that of that gift he is giving back in gratefulness, rather than Cain's more perfunctory act of gratitude. And so here, as you may have noticed, uh, I am making a distinction again between gratitude and gratefulness. I know we often use the terms interchangeably, but I think there's a subtle difference that's important here. Think of gratitude as specific acts of thankfulness, right? These are good things, right? I say thank you. I give a gift to say thanks. I publicly recognize what someone has done, gratitude. But gratefulness is something much deeper than the actions of gratitude. 
It's a disposition. It's an inner state of being that's not dependent on social expectations or what other people do. It's rooted in something else. And we'll get back to this as we move along. God sees Cain's actions. He sees Abel's actions. And he sees the heart of each. And he looks favorably on Abel's. And this angers Cain. We have a name for this sort of angry reaction. When mom's favorite child doesn't get what he wants, it's entitlement. Favoritism often breeds entitlement. And so God warns Cain. And in his warning, we have sin explicitly named for the first time. Chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here, sin is personified. It's like like some demonic force. It's like a wild animal waiting to pounce. And so Cain is left with a choice. Give in to the anger, to the sin, to the entitlement, the desire to take things into your own hands or to resist sin and acknowledge God as the giver of all good things. And it is here that Cain digs in and refuses to listen to God, and sin pounces on him and traps him, enslaves him even. Cain's face falls. And this is not a downcast expression of resignation or disappointment like uh, in our culture. It's a deliberate looking down away from God. Entitlement has led to estrangement from God and between brothers. And then things quickly escalate. And in the next verse, Cain kills his brother. Wow, that got out of hand fast. We have the first death, the first murder recorded in the Bible. And it doesn't end there. God then confronts Cain And Cain responds with the rather sarcastic, evasive, entitled response of, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord responds to Cain's dismissiveness and unrepentance with swift judgment. Cain is cursed from the ground so that the ground will not produce for him, which is a problem for a farmer. This results in Cain being alienated from place, from the land he's supposed to tend to. And divorced from the land, he's to be a wanderer. Cain's expulsion from the land mirrors his parents' expulsion from the garden. And here the breakdown's complete. All relationships are broken. God and humanity, humanity with each other, and humanity from the earth. Cain ends up wandering in the land of Nod, which basically means no man's land. Now, things uh, continue to get a bit worse after this, but let's take a closer look at how God is responding to all of this. We've seen God pronouncing judgment on Cain, but what else is God up to? Well, even in God's judgment on Cain, he shows restraint. He shows mercy. Cain continues to double down on thinking only of himself in the face of judgment. He doesn't repent. He doesn't acknowledge guilt or show remorse for killing. He only thinks about the fact that someone may take vengeance on him if he's a wanderer. Yet God seems to look out for him. He places some sort of mark on him to protect him. 
and he proclaims that if anyone harms Cain, they will face the full measure of punishment for that act. God doesn't just toss Cain aside and give up on him. He protects him. And so Cain's line continues for generations. That's verses 17 to 24. And while in some ways uh, things continue to get worse, there's a lot of good things that actually show up for the first time in here. Things get worse in that Cain's great-great-grandson is Lamech, who takes multiple wives and then kills a man for merely insulting him. And then he brags about it and even makes a mockery of God's protection that was placed on Cain. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. But it's not all bad news. It's among Cain and his descendants that we see so many elements of culture and creativity for the first time. We see the first city built in verse 17, the first nomadic tribes in verse 20, and the first musical instruments in verse 21, and the first trades of metalworking in verse 22. Even in this exile, there are glimpses of human creativity and innovation. Things we are made to do as beings created in the image of God. And next, we also see that God does not turn his back on Adam and Eve. We have this giant collapse into depravity in Genesis 4. We have ungratefulness and pride giving way to favoritism and entitlement, which give birth to estrangement and death. Sin grips humanity. But right at the end of the passage, we jump back in time and return to Adam and Eve and see they have another child. His name is Seth. And Eve has a very different response to this child's birth than when Cain was born. Eve has witnessed the death of one of her sons at the hand of his brother, her other son. She has seen how sin plays out in its brutality. And this time, she receives her son Seth as a gift of God. And here we're exposing the roots of gratefulness. Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring. God's given me another child. There's a dependence on God here, an acknowledgement that it is God who gives and sustains life. There's a decentering of selfish ambition here. There's a realization that life is a gift of God, that creation is a gift of God. And so gratefulness is rooted in God's graciousness toward us. God gives us what we cannot earn. He gives us life. He gives us what is needed to sustain life. And even when we say, no, I'm going to do it my way, he doesn't just abandon us completely. He gives to us when we've done nothing to deserve it. And this is who God is. And so it's from Seth's line that the Bible will trace the history of God's people all the way down to Jesus. And a hint of what is to come is seen when we're told that at the time that Seth has a son named Enosh, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now there's a few dangers that pop up for us right here. When we look at Eve and Cain and Eve and Abel, maybe you can identify with the complex ways that family relationships get messy real fast. Maybe you're a parent or a parent-to-be, and the firstborn child is the child of promise, of hope, of all unfulfilled dreams. 
But maybe you're that child, crushed by the weight of expectations placed on the chosen child. Maybe you're like Abel, ignored, dismissed, a vapor. Maybe you're like Cain, a child of entitlement. Maybe you're like Adam, you're not even in the picture. What do you do? Sin has this way of twisting relationships, of dividing generations and destroying families. Your family's not the only messed up family in the world. And so one danger here is in thinking that, uh, you know, at least I'm, not, I'm better than that other person, right? Or at least my family isn't as messed up as that one. We have a tendency to read ourselves into a story like this in the best light. We, we want to identify with Seth, not with Cain. There's actually a long history of reading this part of the Bible where the mark that God places on Cain is associated with having dark, dark skin. And then this passage has been further used to segregate humanity in very racist ways. In our brokenness, we'll actually twist the Bible to say the opposite of what it says. No, this is not what this is about. This is not about pitting bad sin against really bad sin. This is not about trying to identify with Seth's line as the in-group and lumping those who I do not like or have issues with in Cain, with Cain's people. Seth's line isn't less messed up than Cain's. It's actually more messed up. It has a much longer time for sin to wreak its havoc over the generations. That's basically the whole story of the Bible of God's people from Genesis chapter 5 on. God's people sinning in more and more shocking ways. Now the point is not to set these lines against each other. Sin crouches right next to each and every one of us, ready to drag us down. And so there's a second danger for us. We recognize that we're a mess. We recognize the world's a mess. And we see Eve's response of gratitude and we think, that's it. I just need to be more grateful. Let's be like Eve. Right? We make what would Eve do shirts or something. <laughs> but the thing is, we can't will ourselves into a state of gratefulness. Sin still needs to be dealt with. Even for Eve, it took a tragedy to turn her heart towards gratefulness. So what is gratefulness rooted in? Gratefulness is rooted in the grace of God. It's a response to the grace of God. Earlier, I mentioned that if you follow the line of Seth on down through the ages, you eventually get to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't shy away from the brokenness of humanity. Look at his genealogy sometime. There's murderers and prostitutes and foreigners and all the kinds of people that we like to hold at a distance and cast off into no man's land. Jesus steps into history, another baby boy, but he's the son of God, God who takes a human body and lives life without sin, and then he who knew no sin takes on the sins of the whole world and dies the death that sin leads to on the cross in our place. Another death, but not another tragedy. Unlike Cain's death, Jesus' death isn't permanent. Death is undone when Jesus rises from the dead. And Jesus rises up to the right hand of the Father as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus invites us to follow him, 
And as we follow him, he leads us into those broken and sin-ravaged places in our lives and our relationships. He wants to heal us in those places that we've worked hard to hide and numb and ignore. Jesus wants to break down division and free us from bondage to sin. And so in his grace, he offers healing and restoration. God gives us what we can't earn or do on our own. And once you've experienced that, once you've received that, the natural response is gratefulness. Gratefulness grows. It flows from us as we see Jesus. And it changes how we live our lives. Let me close with just one last thing. In a few moments, uh, we are going to do something together. We're going to celebrate Holy Communion. Some of us know this sacrament by another name, the Holy Eucharist. Eucharist is a word that comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. Holy Communion is an act. It's a service of thanksgiving. It's a service of gratitude, if you will, or maybe more accurately, a service of gratefulness. And this is a gratefulness that is fueled by grace. We come before God in confession. We receive forgiveness. We are spiritually fed. And we're sent out into the world to do the work he has prepared us to do. And we regularly have this service of thanksgiving to help us focus on Jesus. Who he is, what he's done for us and what he's continuing to do for us. It's not the only way that we practice gratefulness, but it's one way we're pointed regularly back to Jesus. So if you've never responded to Jesus, now is the time. Receive God's grace. If you've received God's grace, well, we just keep going on in receiving God's grace because we need a lot of grace. So in light of God's grace to us, seen in Jesus, let us focus on what we have to be truly grateful for. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.